Well, I'm glad to see still so many of you come out this morning. And uh, we have finished our series in the book of Micah. And so we're now heading into our Christmas series. So if you want to, you can already take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah. Yes, we're staying in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. And we're going to uh, be looking primarily, we're going to land, let me put it that way. We're going to land on verse 6. Now, folks, I think even on me, and perhaps for you as well, I think oftentimes there's something lost on us when we fail to recognize what happens on Sunday morning. We, even myself sometimes as a preacher, often forget the importance of what happens here on a Sunday morning. We can just come, we can attend, we've prayed or we've prayed, we've worshiped, we've heard the preaching of God's word, and we home, we go about our day. But maybe, like me, you also might need a reminder that when the church gathers, when we come together, I want you to understand that this is not normal because when the body of Christ gathers, it's an unusual meeting because the church is an unusual entity. You see, the church is the expression of the kingdom of God, right? And when we think of what it means to be an expression of the kingdom of God, that, that is to say this, this is the only kingdom or this is the only, only entity that when they come together is for the purpose of Christ and of God the Father. And that together we are an expression of all that the kingdom of God is. We are a people who express compassion and love and mercy one to another. We're a people who are humble and serve one another. We're a people who have been given a new heart, who love God and love people, whether they deserve to be loved or we feel they don't deserve to be loved. This, when we come together as an expression, the visible expression of the kingdom of God and its leader. So we've just finished a sermon series through the Minor Prophet book of Micah. And so, yes, as I restated, we're actually going to stay in the Old Testament for our next sermon series throughout the month of December. But we're shifting from a Minor Prophet to the Major Prophet of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah also was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, at the same time as Micah, uh, they were contemporaries. And sometimes I think when we think of the Old Testament, we fail to make these connections. But yes, here they were, contemporaries, both prophets in the same kingdom at the same time. And so therefore, the context and the setting for the book of Micah is the same for the book of Isaiah. The only difference is that, that the, uh, the prophet Isaiah prophesied to a greater extent for a longer period of time. 
And so, like Micah, Isaiah warns Israel of the coming judgment at the hands of Assyria and 100 years later at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. But he also prophesies of the redemption that would come through Jesus as we now know him. The Bible proves to us that this Redeemer was Jesus. And so, as we look through the Bible... What we, what we find out and what we've come to understand is that names in the Bible always carry meaning with them. If you remember at all at the beginning of the book of Micah, I stated that Micah's name means who is like God. And when we look at the name of Isaiah, Isaiah's name means God saves. And I just thought, well, isn't this interesting that you have these two prophets prophesying at the same time and people knew what their names meant, right? So you've got these two prophets walking around boldly declaring the coming judgment of God while their names speak to the coming or the character of God, right? And who God is. And so here you have these two prophets and think about it, as they're walking around, Micah, who is like God? And the answer is, well, none. There is none like God. And then you have Isaiah, whose name means God saves, right? The God of Israel alone is the God who saves. Remember, they were dealing with a whole lot of idolatry and false and pagan gods, right? And so the point is when you put these two names together with these prophets, in spite or not in spite of, but in line with what they're prophesying about the coming judgment, they're also prophesying about the coming redemption. And they're letting the people know even through their names that, listen, there is no God like the God of Israel because it is the God of Israel alone who saves. And so what we're going to do in our sermon series for the month of December for the Christmas month, we're going to intensely look at the names of Jesus. And our sermon series is actually going to be centered on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the names, just like we just saw the names of Micah and Isaiah. We're going to look at the names given to this coming Redeemer, who we know is Jesus Christ. And so let me just, again, just remind you just briefly of the context here. And I'm going to walk through the first couple of verses of Isaiah 9 so that we can get down to verse 6. But here what we have is in Isaiah chapter 8, Isaiah also is prophesying of the invasion of Assyria as it would come into the northern kingdom. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 22, we read, and they will look to the earth. This is speaking about the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust in thick darkness. Now, we've heard much about this already over the last last sermon series, last two months. And we also understand that the invasion of Assyria would be a terrible time for the people of Israel. Israel would be a devastating time. But as in true prophecy fashion, when you look at one verse, sometimes the next verse does a complete turnaround and jumps ahead and gives us a different perspective. And that's exactly what happens next when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. 
So we have now a turnaround. Although he's been prophesying, he switches from doom to gloom, and he now gives hope. And that's what we've learned about God, the God of Israel. He is a God of hope, right? So we look at Isaiah 9.1. Read along with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, just to simplify, I've already done all the study for you and for me so we can have a better understanding of what is being stated here. What he's referring to when he refers to Zebulun and Naphtali, these were first lands that were, that were given to certain tribes of Israel, that which later became known as Upper and Lower Galilee, or the province of Galilee, if you will. And if you know the Bible map, Galilee is situated at the top of the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that's who he's speaking to. And first we see this picture of doom and gloom. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, we see that hope is coming. Never does God leave his people without hope. And what we see in this region of Galilee that he's pointing to, that at one time had faced all this doom and gloom, all of a sudden won't be experiencing any anymore. There's, there's going to be a time where it ends and things are going to turn around, right? And then we, we, things are going to be glorious. And look at verse 2 in chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness, we read, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Now, again, pause here for a moment. When we hear of this light, of course, light represents truth. Light represents integrity. Light represents hope. It represents joy. It represents peace, right? And so there's all of these elements that, that light is a representation of. But here in this passage, when it speaks to them that the people that have been in darkness have seen this great light, it's referring to a person. And we know that it is none other than Jesus Christ because Jesus is the light of the world. And so Isaiah is now piercing through the judgment, going beyond the prophecy of judgment, and he sees this time of joy and light because the light has come into the world. Let's, let's keep going here. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. He's speaking of Israel now, right? So now things are flourishing and they're prosperous. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so here things are good. Things have turned around. At one time the land was desolate and empty, and now it's flourishing, and there's joy, right? Verse 4, and here he begins to unpack for us why this is happening. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And we'll get to that in a minute here. And he goes on. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All right. To lay this out simply, 
Isaiah sees that the power of Israel's oppressors would be broken. And in fact, it would be so broken and overcome that there would be no trace of it left. The boots of those warriors who attacked him will be burned and gone, right? Those clothes soaked in the blood of the people and the soldiers as they fought, burned and gone. None of it will be left. And he says something very strange and interesting in this passage. However it would happen, he gives us the idea that it's going to happen in a very unusual way. And that's important for us to note. And this connects with what I said at the beginning of the service, that the body of Christ coming together, the church, is a very unusual situation because the church is an unusual entity. But as we look here, he refers to the, the, the time of, of when the soldiers or the army was overthrown in Midian. What, what's he talking about? What he's referring to, and we all know the story, is the story of Gideon, and they were being oppressed and attacked by the Midianites, and they were just wreaking havoc on Israel. And so Gideon was called to raise up this army, and he raised up thousands of soldiers, and God kept peeling soldiers away and away and away. And God narrowed the army down to 300 soldiers. Remember this story? And with 300 soldiers, God wanted Gideon to overthrow an army that was beyond measure, meaning they couldn't even count the size of this army, was so overwhelming and so large. And here they had 300 men. But what's really unusual about this situation was that in this time, the way God wanted Gideon to attack this army was to do it. He wanted to take these, him to take these 300 men, surround the Midian army, surround him in the middle of the night. Then they were to light their torches and smash their clay pots, yell at the top of their voices, and blow their trumpets. An absolutely unusual art of war. All right? And so what happened? Gideon and his 300 measly men did this over this army that was far too big to count. And what happened when they did this? It caused these soldiers who many of them were sleeping to wake up and started attacking one another and killing their own army, their own soldiers. You can read the whole story in Judges chapter 7. And what I believe Isaiah is actually getting at by referring to it here in Isaiah is that just like Israel's redemption in that day came in a very unusual way. The same thing would happen when this Redeemer, this Savior would come and save his people. He would do it in a very unusual way so that God alone can take the credit because it's beyond human capability or logic or reason. And then what we find out as we get down to verse 6 is that this redemption, as I've already alluded to, would come through a person. And we know it's Jesus. But let us look at what it says. So I want to read verses 6 and 7 so we can broaden the context. For to us a child is born. 
See, this is why the people have now been entered into a season of joy. Because the light has come, right? And this child is the light. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We memorize this passage during Christmas season. We teach it to our children because it's such an important passage of scripture. It was hope for the people before Jesus had come and it's hope for us now because we saw that he has come and he's coming again. Now, think of how uplifting this good news would have been when Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. They were not left without hope in spite of the fact that this was now happening. This was a promise from God that even though this invasion would come, judgment would come, that God would save them, right? So they have this promise and they're clinging on to it, they're hanging on to it. And here's what they, here's what they know, here's what they've been promised. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is through whom our redemption is going to come. Through this child who's going to be born within or from among the people of Israel. But there's something very unique about this son in that God was giving him. I'm not going to time to unpack what we read in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and 3 about the coming of the Son of God and the angel meeting with Mary and so on. But we know the story. But it's very unique in the sense that God was giving a son, or better yet, God was giving his son. A son without beginning and without end. A son who was part of the triune God had been for all eternity past. We have to use language like this because we can't express what that all means and entails in regards to time. Now I want us to understand that the way or the idea in which this verse is written or that word is used, that a son is given, it's in the sense of when you're giving a gift, right? And when it comes to gifts, gifts aren't earned, gifts aren't deserved, Gifts are given out of love and compassion from the one who is giving it. And that's the idea here. That it was a gift given from God to the people of God. And it would be the very son of God. And this time, unlike Moses or any of their former leaders... They would be shepherded by the very Son of God in the flesh as one of them. And this is recorded history. This truly happened. He came. He put on flesh. And we read of his, the story of his coming that night in the manger. And as the shepherds were out in the fields and the angels came and gave praise to God and announced his coming. 
And we read on here and it says, we continue reading, and the government shall be on his shoulder. The idea is simple here. The authority and the responsibility and the power of governing the kingdom will be his. It will all rest on his. But he's going to be a different ruler. He's going to be set apart from all other leaders that they've had before him. And this becomes evident as we look at what he'll be called. And this is where we're going to camp for the rest of this morning. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Just let that sink in your mind a little bit. Think that through a little bit. Ask yourself, how do I understand this? What is this talking about? What does this mean? That he will be the wonderful counselor. As you think that through, like me, perhaps many of you thought that what this means is that he's the kindest, most caring, wisest therapist that we can come to for advice for our personal issues. Don't put up your hand, but anyone else think that way of this passage as well? Right? And when I think of this word wonderful, we all have our own spin on the word wonderful. Now here we know that Jesus is called the wonderful counselor, but when I think of the word wonderful, the first thing that comes to my mind, quite honestly, is my wife. She really, truly is one of the most wonderful people that I know. And if any of you know her the way I do, she's kind, she's compassionate, she's caring. The way you see her here at church is honestly the way she is at home. She's true to who she is. She's kind and gentle and compassionate and caring. She listens to all my complaints without rolling her eyes. She puts up with me and all my garbage, right? She corrects me um, by being honest with me and sometimes tells me to pull up my big boy pants and be a man of God. That's true. I'm not just saying that. Men, if you have a wife like that, you should all give a hearty Amen. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's what I think of when I think of the word wonderful. It's an expression of my wife comes to my mind. This is who she is. She's so, she's unselfish and she just serves and she serves and she serves as, uh, wherever she can at home, myself, our children, right? She's just this wonderful, wonderful woman. But we all have our own spin on the definition of wonderful and what it means. But now let's pause a moment. And we're going to look at what this word actually means in this passage. The word wonderful here doesn't mean fantastic or really great or kind, or compassionate, these things. Here's what the word wonderful means. An extraordinary 
and mysterious nature that's hard to grasp. Right, get that. It, it, it means it's, he's actually going to be unfathomable in the sense that you can't wrap your mind around all that he is and who he is. He's beyond fully comprehending or understanding. He's too great for our tiny little human minds to grasp and all that he is. So when we think of the word wonderful here, it's not like, oh, they're so sweet and kind. This is like, oh, he's beyond my comprehension to understand. I can't grasp all that he is. And then we move on to the word counselor. And as I alluded to, and many of the books that I've read on counseling, and I have, usually often gets interpreted as therapist, right? One who helps us deal with all our fears and our anxieties and our traumas, who is our strength and our encouragement, who leads us and guides us in the right way. And here's the thing, although Jesus does all of those things and Jesus is all of those things, that's not the intended use of the word in this passage. If I can give you a rule of interpretation for scripture, it's that the passage or the context always gives us the definition of how a term is being used. The text influences the meaning. So when we look at this word counselor, the intended meaning behind this word is not so much therapist, although he is all of that, if you will, but that of a political or military strategist or an advisor. So that kind of changes the tone of this passage a little bit, doesn't it? But nonetheless, equally as important. In other words, the one who would save them, this child that would be born to them, the son that was given, would be a leader whom they would have a hard time really comprehending and understanding. And his ways and everything that he was going to do was going to be beyond human logic and reason. And so they would behold him and go like, um, what? Yeah. That's the, that's the idea here. And so now with this in mind, understanding this, we jump ahead into the New Testament. We jump ahead 750 to 800 years, and we find Israel subjugated no longer to Assyria or to Babylon, but subjugated to Rome. And Jesus has already been born. The sun has come. The light has shined. And in fact, I'm going to move ahead, and, and I'm not going to get into Luke chapter 2, 3, and 4, where we see the birth and the life of Jesus. As he grows up, he's born, he's grown up. I'm not going to look at the shepherd's story or all of the angels that came and announced his coming and praised God and all of that. We, all that has happened already. And we come to the place where Jesus has begun his ministry. And in John chapter 6, we read that we've come to the place after Jesus has miraculously fed thousands of people and they now want to make him king. King, right? Because think of this, they're, they're, not, they're not dumb. They're, they're connecting the dots here, right? This is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. 
This is the coming Messiah. He's finally come. He, look what he just did. He's doing the works of God, right? That they had seen as they wandered through the wilderness, right? He's doing the same thing. Oh, you're hungry? Boom, right? You just see this food stretched for thousands of people when it was meant for five or six people, right? And so they see him doing the works of God, and here he is. He's been born. He's come. He's the one who's going to set us free from Rome now, from the tyranny that we're experiencing. And now we're going to become the nation and the people that we're called to be, that God promised that we would be. This is the one of whom Isaiah spoke saying that he would be the wonderful counselor. So look at him. He is wonderful. Look at what he just did. He just fed all these people in a miraculous way. So let's see now when we make him our king, let's see the miraculous and unusual ways in which he will overthrow Rome and raise us up to be that kingdom that God promised that we would become. But the way in which Jesus built, began to build his kingdom, if I can use it in the New Testament context, is so profound, so unusual, so unique, so far from what was expected, so mind-blowing that most Israelites to this day do not accept Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this coming Messiah. Whereas Israel believed God was going to send them a military leader endowed with the power of God, right? That's what it means that he would be wonderful beyond comprehension. We would see him do these mighty things that Moses, that happened through the hands of Moses when the power of God came through him. And yet, what he actually did and how he established and built his kingdom was truly, and there's no other word for it, wonderful. Hard to grasp, right? Beyond understanding. That's not what we expected. That's not what we wanted. What's this? Right? And what I want to unpack for us moving on here is something that I believe we really need to get, whether you're already a Christian or not, but we really need to grasp this and understand this. You see, instead of taking over the kingdom of Israel and rising up as its military or governmental leader in that day, after John was arrested, John excuse me, the Baptist, we read in Mark 1.15. Remember, they had already wanted to make him king. And here is instead of saying, hey, I'm here. I'm gonna take over, right? Come unto me, all you military and politicians and religious leaders and serve under me. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does in Mark 1.15, Jesus proclaims, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And can you imagine the people? Yeah, here we go. But instead, what does Jesus say? Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Uh, what? Yeah, repent and believe in the gospel. Instead of calling out mighty men of valor, the military elite, instead of calling out military strategists and savvy political leaders and the religious elite of his day, Jesus, as he establishes kingdom, says in Matthew 18, 3, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? See, this all feeds into that wonderful counselor that Isaiah was talking about. People would be like confused, like, what are you talking about? Be the leader we want you to be and need you to be. And yet he's turning this thing completely upside down and on its head. Instead of recruiting the religious and political leaders of Israel, Jesus tells them in Matthew 21, 31, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Folks, this is not what the masses expected. Jesus was literally turning everything upside down and on its head. And can you imagine people getting in the little gossip groups and going, what? what? Prostitutes and tax collectors? The most hated people in our society? Does he think this is going to work? What kind of kingdom is this going to be? And he's not calling any military elite. He continues on as he establishes his kingdom, spreading and sharing what this kingdom is like. And instead of taking vengeance on his enemies, we read in Matthew 5, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, just pause for a moment. They were waiting for this guy who was going to come in and totally, utterly destroy Rome with a sword, with the power of God. And now he's calling the people of his kingdom to love their enemies. Don't you know who the Romans are? And if you... If you spent enough time researching scriptures and, and looking at the context of all of this, you knew that the, the Israelites hated the Romans and referred to them as dogs, right? And when they referred to them as dogs, they didn't look at dogs in the same way we do today when they're man's best friend, right? These were, these were miscreants. These were animals that you, know, that you got rid of, right? They weren't friendly pets. These were scoundrels. And now he tells them to love them. And then he doesn't stop there. In fact, it's further expounded in Romans 12, 20, where we read, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. How, how many of us struggle to do that nowadays to the people we don't like? And yet here Jesus is telling the people of Israel to love their enemies, to feed them when they're hungry, 
They give them to drink when they're thirsty. This is not what they had hoped for. This is not what they had been longing for. It truly was wonderful. And instead, remember in the book of Micah, we see how all the leadership had become so corrupt, right? Power hungry, manipulative, and so on. What we see in Jesus when he came to build his kingdom was that he didn't simply demand his people to be like this while he himself hid away in the back of some ritzy mansion or some office. No, in fact, he first modeled it for the people of his kingdom. He modeled what he preached. And instead of using his authority and assuming the top political office in Israel, we read in Philippians 2, 7, that he made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant. And instead of becoming rich at the expense of his people, gaining or garnishing their taxes, we read in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Instead of abusing his position and taking advantage of his people, we read in Mark 10, 45, that he did not come to be served, but what? He came to serve. Instead of killing his enemies, we discover in Romans 5, verses 7 through 10, that he laid down his life for his enemies. See, when you begin to put all this together, and we're just scratching the surface here, but there's so much more, we realize, we begin to understand what it means when Isaiah called him wonderful counselor, when we understand that phrase properly. There is no one like him. There is no kingdom like his. And it really is hard to grasp as to how this all comes into being and how it's established. Perhaps maybe in our day and age, maybe for the first time in our life, or maybe for many of us, we're beginning to finally experience a little bit, in a little way, what Israel was experiencing as they were subjugated to Rome. And with everything that we see happening today and we see the political unrest, if you will, here in our own country, if I can use that term, if it's the proper way to use it, I'm not sure, right? But we see what's happening. We see the overreach and everything. We're beginning to identify with what Israel was experiencing in their day, right? And so maybe we, like Israel, are looking for Jesus to come in and just make things right now again, right? We don't want his kingdom. We want this kingdom, but we want this kingdom to be run well. And Jesus said, that's not the kingdom I've come to establish. That's not the kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are not compatible with the kingdom of God. They're not compatible. And so the point of all this for us is that we are unwise to put our hope and all our trust in, in our political situation nowadays. But is that what we want? 
Is that all we want from Jesus? Is to just make our life better here now in this kingdom? Under the leaders and the rulers we have now? Is that all we want? And Jesus is like, that's not what I want for you. There is a better kingdom. A totally different kingdom. And it's not compatible to the one of this world. Everything about it is different. Everything. The way it was established, the way it came into being, everything has been orchestrated in a very unusual, unique way. So when you think back now again to the story of Gideon and how they overthrew that army, right, with clay pots and torches and trumpets, in the same way, the kingdom of God, when this ruler came that would save his people, Jesus, the way he would implement his kingdom would be very different and unusual. And folks, our hope is not in our kingdom on this earth, right? Our hope is in the kingdom of God and in its leader, Jesus Christ. And his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, love, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God. This is the only kingdom that will last forever. And the church, brothers and sisters, is a visible expression of that kingdom. And we are the ones who model what it is to be part of that kingdom and that we are compassionate and loving and gracious. We're humble. We speak the truth in love, right? We imitate the very character of the leader of the kingdom of God and it's expressed here and among us. That is who we are. That is what we are called to be like. And the only way into the kingdom of God is by faith in Jesus Christ who opened the door for us to enter in when 2,000 years ago, 30 years after his coming in a manger, when he put on humanity, he laid down his life to die through that so that through his sacrifice, you and I could enter in only by faith in him. And his kingdom is truly the kingdom of peace, the kingdom of righteousness and joy. It is the very nature of Christ. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. He's beyond fully comprehending. And the way he's done things just makes no human sense. And yet his kingdom is the one, the only one, where we will find everything we're looking for. Have you called out to Jesus? Do you know him? Are you already part of his kingdom? If you are, we have the incredible joy because of our union with Jesus, having died with him on the cross, having been raised with him to newness of life, 
that he has put his spirit within us and he's given us a new heart that he's molding and shaping so that when the body comes together, we are an expression of the character of our leader, Jesus Christ. And one day, one day, the kingdom will be culminated and we'll see it in all its glory and its fullness. And I would encourage you, if you have not yet come to Jesus, I would invite you to come to him while he may still be found. Because he truly is the wonderful counselor and he doesn't operate the way this world operates. But everything he does will last for eternity. Whereas the kingdoms of this world will collapse and die. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we have entered into the Christmas season and we take this month intensely and we look back to when you were born and we look back even further and we look at the prophecies concerning you and we're learning who you are, more about you, Lord. We see this morning that you are that wonderful counselor. You are beyond understanding. We can't comprehend all that you are and all your perfections. When we look at your grace and your mercy and your love, and how you poured that out. And that we can never attain to your level of mercy and grace and compassion. And yet, and yet, you have poured it into us. You've poured your love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. The church is a very unique entity. It's not like the other kingdoms of this world. And even though we are sinful, even though we are still in the body of this flesh and we struggle with our own sins, you have given us your spirit, you've given us a new spirit, you've given us a new heart, and you have brought us into your kingdom. A kingdom that as we are being conformed into the image of Christ, that we are beginning to express more and more fully this is the everlasting kingdom. And you will be and you are the everlasting, wonderful counselor. And so I pray, Lord, that we would turn our eyes to you. We would put all our hope in you. And that we would live as people of the kingdom of God. People full of love and compassion. People of truth and integrity. And people with joy in spite of the circumstances that we are seeing in the kingdom where we are at presently. But we have the joy and the privilege of knowing the fullness of the kingdom that is to come, that you have made us a part of. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his kingdom. Lord, would you really just help us understand and, and, and grasp what it means that he is the wonderful counselor? May our joy and our peace be found in him and him alone. If anyone would need prayer after the service, I'd invite you to come up. We'd love to pray with you. Pray that we would become the people of God and we would, we would be a visible expression of the very character of this wonderful counselor and his kingdom. Thank you, Lord, for your church. That even though we still struggle with sin and our sins are many yet through you we have been cleansed and washed white as snow 
So Lord, I pray that as we remind you in the book of Colossians that we put off the old man and we would put on the new man. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your compassion towards us. And I pray, Lord, that it would be evident within us as we get the incredible privilege of expressing this to one another so that the whole world might see the wonderful counselor of the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus, we pray.